This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy on 3RRR, your weekly hour of all things medical and psychological. I've got good news and bad news this morning. I might start with the bad news. The bad news is Lolly Doc is not with us this morning. Turns out emergency room doctors do actually have to work on Sundays sometimes and seems he's prioritised working in the emergency department instead of the radio. Go figure. But the good news is we still have two of our trusty, wonderful, regular panellists, Dr Malice and Miss Medic, and we've also got two very special guests to join us this morning, which I'm very excited about. So let me tell you about our guests. First guest is Mark Grant. He's a clinical psychologist and he has recently published a book called Change Your Brain, Change Your Pain, which, as you might imagine, is all about the links between mind and body and the ways that we can change the experience of chronic pain by focusing on the brain rather than the body. Mark is of the belief that acute pain starts in the body, but that chronic pain is actually experienced by the brain, which I find fascinating and I can't wait to find out more about. So he'll be our first guest this morning. And then our second very special guest this morning is Dr. Emma Halmos. And Emma is an accredited practicing dietitian who also works in research. And she's here to talk to us about IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, and specifically the FODMAP diet, which has been shown to have an impact on IBS. Um, she also does loads of other research in things like celiac disease at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research. So depending on how long we can nab her for. We're going to talk about all of these things and more. We better get started straight away and say hello to our wonderful panellists who aren't working this morning. Dr Malice, good morning. Good morning. Now, I just have to say, Dr Lolly, Doc is uh, very kind to give an apology. I've just got an anecdote when I was in my residences at an old hospital called Prince Henry's Hospital. On Christmas Day, I was told to come in because the person who was rostered was sick. So I came in and it was a quiet day and we turned on the television and he was at the Australian Open tennis oh, game oh, in the nice row. Yay. <laughs> now that just Busted. has left it me with a little bit of a lolly like obviously is a sincere, honest guy and we wish Maybe him well. he's recovering from Derby. Well, I was just going to say, you know, there, when there are major sports events around Australia, it's just like a religious ceremony, and some people have preferences for that as well. And it is a long weekend as well. Well, there's Cup ah. Day on Tuesday, so let's just think broadly. Um, let's try calling him halfway through, see yeah. what happens. Facebook or, will be very informative <laughs> to us, <okay>. I suspect. <laughs> but if you are genuinely working in a busy emergency clinic, Lollydock, then all the best to you. That's on the Sunday of a long weekend. Really well tough. done, yes. Yeah. Well done. Victorious proud of you. <laughs> we thank you. And thank you, yeah. If you're there. <laughs> Miss Medic, good morning. Good morning. What an amazing day was yesterday. Oh, How good was that weather? It was incredible. It makes such a difference, doesn't it? It does. But going out this morning, I had the feeling that there'd be lots of hay fever sufferers today. It feels like a very... Um, very much a Melbourne mm. hay fevery day with those high winds and rain that's brought lots of little p- 
pollen and grass seeds around. We should do a segment on hay fever coming up. How about next month, Miss Medic? Absolutely, let's do I it. I suffer from hay fever, so I'd like to know more. Okay, I'll do my Miss Medic's top five tips for hay fever. How about that? Great, sorted. Thanks. Awesome. Could I ask you also throw in mosquitoes? Oh, because gosh. that's a really big issue. It's going to be. A, yeah. uh, our house was inundated <laughs> last night. Yeah. It was crazy. My, I'm sorry. I'm laughing because it's been on my mind. I had a mosquito in my bedroom last yeah. night, which I'm sure you all know is the most annoying thing ever. Mm. And then just as I walked out my front door early this morning, I got a bite on my ankle. It's going to be thing. a really bad year for so yeah. mosquitoes. What can you do? Well, we'll talk about that <laughs> as well. Stay tuned for <laughs> next month. Uh,. I think that we should get straight into a bit of chit-chat because mm. we don't want to leave too little time for our two fabulous guests. Absolutely. So, Miss Medic, I can see you've got some things there in front of you. What's your short segment for the week? So, I thought I would talk about uh, the Miss Medic's top five supplements which actually have a bit of scientific evidence of benefit behind them. Are you saying most supplements don't that have That is science? exactly what I am saying. But that's Ooh. not what you would think if you looked down the aisles of, you know, your local chemist warehouse that are just full of all these supplements. Full of really expensive supplements they as well. Really you can spend a fortune. Oh, look, we know that in Australia they that uh, the population spends about $1.5 billion a year on these supplements. That's unbelievable. So prepare to be underwhelmed because even <laughs> my top five uh, supplements that have a bit of evidence have just a, like a smidge of evidence. Really? Yeah, smidge. So let's hit it. So um, number one, fish oil, which... In the years gone by, was all hoped to be this, you know, miracle panacea for cardiovascular disease, but the evidence has not been so supportive. Um, so there is a tiny bit of evidence, or it does show some benefit in decreasing your triglyceride levels, but that's about it. Do they work if you buy the big uh, jar of them, the big container, <laughs> and you and you just leave them sitting on your kitchen bench? <laughs> Is there any evidence for that? Mm, what do you think, Dr. O'Donnell? <laughs> thinking no. No. Yeah. So that's the thing. And look, I think that most... Uh, that, I'm sure that happens so often. <laughs> that's and, my life. Yeah, yeah. And then they expire and people just throw them out. But... um. Or they sit there for, you know, yeah, gathering dust. But look, there's very little evidence that fish oil really is, is it, like it, it probably just lowers some triglyceride levels and that's all. And what does that do? Sorry, what's that? So look, triglyceride is a component of cholesterol. So if you are one of those people that has elevated triglycerides in particular, in, when we look at your cholesterol profile, then it may assist in, in lowering that. So cholesterol is... Elevated cholesterol is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. But there actually hasn't been any evidence to show that taking fish oil actually decreases your chance of a heart attack or any other cardiovascular disease, but it may just lower this number. And that's it. What about the brain function, smarter? No. 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 And look, on the last show we had... um, Dr. Anthea Rhodes on talking about the kids health poll and she made this point too that fish oil has been marketed for children for brain development there's no evidence of any benefit wow. there as well so that's same. news to me so there you go thank you for um, enlightening us number two calcium so calcium was a big one for a while um, thinking that everyone should have a calcium supplement or you know postmenopausal women at risk of osteoporosis and that sort of thing but um yeah, while calcium is definitely important for bone strength, it, 
better by far to get it from the diet because we've actually had research over the last few years that having calcium supplements can actually increase your risk of cardiovascular disease. What? So there are harms potentially associated with taking these supplements as well. So in terms of... But I'm talking about benefits, remember? Yeah, so I was just thinking, these yeah. are the ones that are worth taking. Hello. Yeah. So the evidence of actual benefit in terms of decreased fracture risk, so because it's involved with bone density, if you fall, increased risk of fractures, if you've got low bone density, it's only actually been shown, so calcium supplement has only been shown to reduce fracture risk in a set population of people, and they are elderly women who reside in an aged care facility. Wow. That's the only population that have really been shown that they have decreased fracture risk. Important to know. Yep. So what's your number three evidence-based supplement (laughs) worth taking in a tiny section of the population? (laughs) You can see the message that I'm kind of getting through here. Uh, Vitamin D. And look, vitamin D, this one was massive over the last 10 years. Everybody was coming into general practice and requesting to have their vitamin D levels measured, saying, I'm low in vitamin D, I need my blood test done. And this cost the public health dollar, you know, millions of dollars. And what we actually know now... And there was this thought for a while that vitamin D, low vitamin D could be involved in so many disease processes. Um, but what we know now is that it's probably only about, even though 50% of the population, if we measured their vitamin D level, would fall outside, the, so under the therapeutic range that we mark on, mm-hmm. on blood tests, that that's probably not significant and it's only the ones that are really really low in vitamin d which is probably about four percent of the population four percent yeah that should be probably supplementing with a vitamin d supplement so if you fall in that really there's a sort of specific health groups that should have their vitamin d level checked and then probably should go on a supplement but it's not your average joe I'm starting to feel so righteous about all the tablets I'm not taking. Absolutely. If only you didn't purchase them in the <laughs> yeah. first place. Yes, like, exactly. Could I, could I just ask, are there risks for the vitamin D supplements? Because I am on it. It's a personal question. Uh, there's no, There hasn't been, not that oh. I'm aware of, that there's not great sort of risks associated with taking too much vitamin D. You probably just excrete it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but And look, we probably... The vitamin D supplements have also been thought to not be so, like have as much bang for their buck as thought to. So you might be taking a supplement that is giving you the equivalent of like three three minutes of skin, ex, you know, arms and legs exposed in the sun. So you have to think about maybe you're better off <laughs> rolling up those sleeves and getting out there. Um, so really we need to think about just targeting those people that are at risk of having... And look, the main risk with low vitamin D that has got strong evidence is also about bone strength as well because mm. vitamin D is important for the absorption of calcium. So, again... 4% of the population yeah. though would benefit from that. Exactly. Wow. Uh, zinc. So there's been lots of talk about... Um, what can you do if you are battling the common cold or the mild, the you know the mild viral upper respiratory tract infection? And you know people talk about vitamin C and echinacea, and there's no evidence for those things. What there is a little bit of evidence for is a zinc supplement, and this, but it needs to be taken in a specific way, and it may short. It's like the benefit again is small, so. Taking a zinc supplement within the first 24 hours of symptom onset may decrease your viral illness by about a day. 
Um, and you need to probably be taking at least 75 milligrams a day and lozenge form is the best oh. but there are side effects involved with that like a horrible taste and feeling a bit nauseated Nauseous, yeah. yeah so you have to again weigh up the benefits wow of that. <laughs> these are the supplements with evidence yeah so think about <laughs> tiny the other evidence. yeah like, i am thinking you know, about multi, all the other multivitamins ones. absolutely zero evidence for multivitamins Anyway, let's move on to number five. So many questions. And I just yep. yeah, wanted to add this one in. Um, like St. John's wort, which is has been used for the treatment of depression. There actually is probably it's not a consistent overall styles, but uh, overall trials, but there's uh, it probably does improve mild depression, but only mild depression. And again, not without its risks. So should not be taken with other prescription drugs, including other antidepressants. Mm. And it has no benefit in the sort of moderate to severe depression. And with all these, all of these things, the things that are, what I would really like to point out is discuss this with your general practitioner. That's exactly what I was just about to say. I mean, it sounds like a bit of a minefield and it's pretty complex and there's very little evidence. So to be trying to navigate this on our own and work out what to yeah. spend money on, and what just, to take and yeah. how much. And to not be sort of fall into the trap of thinking, oh, this is natural, therefore there's no risk of harm. That's not necessarily true. And mm-hmm. each year we see um, a few cases of really significant liver failure, even death from people using complementary medicines. So mm-hmm. you need to discuss what you're taking with your with your um, medical health professional and think about whether your money might be better spent, because these are expensive, like you alluded to, might be better spent on just some good quality food or investing in some exercise. That's what I was just about to say as well, actually, that is another take home that, you know, these things are very important for us, but the best way to get them is through the food that you ingest. Absolutely, no doubt. It's the fact that in supplement form, they're just not, they're not of benefit. That's right. So a healthy diet is always going to outweigh all of these supplements. Just listen to this. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Mark Grant before I introduce him. So Mark has just recently published this book called Change Your Brain, Change Your Pain and it's all about the links between mind and body in terms of combating and um, managing chronic pain. It's fascinating stuff. I highly recommend it. There's already a photo of it on our Facebook page and we'll put more information up after the show today. But Mark is a clinical psychologist and he's got over 20 years experience in the treatment of things like stress, trauma and pain. He spent a few years as a community health psychologist but since then he's mainly worked in private practice out of a large multidisciplinary medical centre in Melbourne. And as well as working as a therapist, he does a whole range of other things. I don't quite know where he finds the time but he's a researcher, author, educator and app developer which we're also going to talk about if we get time and an anxiety app um for uh the alleviation of somatic the somatic component of chronic pain fascinating stuff so mark welcome great to be here thank you so much for joining us i've got so much that i want to ask you about and i am aware that we've only got 20 minutes so i might start mark by asking you where the inspiration came for this fantastic new book congratulations by the way it's an amazing piece of work Thank you. Um, well, apart from the fact that chronic pain affects so many Australians, it's one in five and over 65, it's one in three. Mm. Uh, and it's, um, 
really what got me started was frustration because one of my <laughs> first clients as a neophyte psychologist 20 <laughs> years ago happened to be a young woman who'd been in a car crash and her back was smashed and she she'd gone from being on the verge of you know moving into a house having a family to living in the basement of her parents home mm. in chronic pain you know just the whole thing her life was ruined and I just felt so helpless to be able to help her. I didn't, didn't really feel like I had it. All I had was distraction, relaxation, positive thinking, and I don't think it was doing much for her at all. And I just felt so frustrated. And as a therapist, that's not what you want to feel. Mm. So I guess that's where it really started, just wanting, not, not, not wanting to, not knowing what to do. And how long ago was that, Mark? No, that was right at the beginning of my psychology career. So about 20 years ago. <laughs> so for 20 years you've been sort of fascinated by this area of pain and how we can help people who are suffering from chronic pain more effectively. Mm. Yes. Wow. Well, there's been a lot of developments in the 20 years since I started with um, neuroplasticity and changes in um, our understanding of pain and mm. and the way we treat it mm. so it's it's a never-ending uh, subject that is continually evolving i bet i was quite surprised to hear you say just then that the rates of chronic pain are one in five and after is it after 65 one in three mm-hmm. um i guess i don't really know much about the experience of chronic pain lucky for me uh can you give us a bit of a sense of yeah who who are the people experiencing this how much of a problem is it sure sure um as i said it affects one in five and people who have had uh, trauma previous trauma are most at risk and that could be someone who's been in a car accident but could it could equally be someone who grew up in um a dysfunctional family and didn't have a secure attachment with their parents. In fact, attachment problems are one of the biggest risk factors for chronic pain because people with poor attachment don't look after themselves very well. They have negative, they have poor self-esteem, trouble forming relationships and those kinds of people are most likely to not take care of themselves and sort of put themselves at risk. That's fascinating and I think obviously from the title of your book the link between mind and body is overt and i think that that's a lot of the content in the book about the way that uh, what goes on in our mind affects our physical and somatic sensations but that's that's a new bit of information for me that things like your attachment style and what's happened in your early childhood life and the way that you look after yourself in your day-to-day life can actually affect the physical experience of chronic pain and i also noted in your book that you you say very early on in the book that you know where whereas acute pain is a very physical uh, bodily sensation chronic pain is really experienced by the brain and it's the the brain that um i guess perpetuates the experience of chronic pain so I don't know even where to start with that. How can you help us understand what what this link between mind and body is and, and the role of the brain in chronic pain? Sure. Well, just just very quickly, there are, there are three three things in the brain that that are different in chronic pain sufferers to people without chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Their brains functioning different differently so for example there's a thing called the default mode network which is actually your worry circuit mm-hmm. and that's just going crazy in people with chronic pain that they can't sleep they're worrying they're in a state of constant agitation they can never relax secondly there's a whole um, cascade of biochemical changes that are happening such as decreased GABA 
serotonin, norepinephrine, and these changes, after they've been going for a while, become self-perpetuating. So even when the, th- the thing that caused the pain has ended, their brain is just in, in a state of uh, imbalance, they can't sleep, they're dysregulated emotionally, etc., uh, etc., and finally, there are structural changes. There are um, people with chronic pain are losing grey matter at twice the rate associated with normal ageing. And so, of course, you don't see any of that uh, when you look at the person, but th- it's all happening in their head. So those first two that you mentioned, I think, are fairly self-explanatory, you know, the sort of worry centres going crazy and, and things like um, emotional regulation not being as strong. But can you tell me a bit more about the grey matter? What, what does that mean if someone's losing grey matter at a faster rate? Okay, well, grey matter is, uh, is mainly involved in um, learning and pr- information processing. So most chronic pain sufferers have uh, concentration and memory problems. And that's coming from the loss of grey matter. Right. Probably the biochemical changes are probably the most important. So, that, for example, chronic pain sufferers have increased substance P, which actually increases your sensitivity to pain. Wow. Yeah. So this is not to say that the pain experienced in chronic pain isn't a real pain. It's just that from my perspective of it, as a general practitioner, it just screams to what we already know, in which case that the same treatments for acute pain don't work very well for chronic pain. Exactly. I think actually the the word pain, when you use it in chronic, is misleading because it, chronic pain and acute pain are just two different problems. And, you know, acute pain is a symptom. Chronic pain is a syndrome. Mm. And, and it involves you know, all those other changes that I've mentioned, it's misleading actually to talk about them in the way we do, but that's the terminology we have. So understanding that there are these um, very obvious changes that occur in the brains of people who are experiencing a syndrome of chronic pain, what does that mean for treatment? Because you said that's where you started. You were frustrated as a therapist, you know, Mm. you wanted to have something that you could offer people experiencing chronic pain. So... What does that mean for treatment if someone came in experiencing chronic pain? Where, where do you start as a therapist? Well, I start, I start by having this understanding of how the brain works. And one of the fundamental things about how the brain works is that it's a, it works top, down and bottom up. So bottom-up processing is sensory processing. That's what, that's what nociception is when you feel a pain or when you hear a sound or smell a smell. Top-down processing is more cognitive. It's thoughts, it's memories, it's perceptions. Mm-hmm. So after I've assessed the person and decided where, where their pain's coming from, and it often has a, a combination of things, trauma and medical problems, I'm looking at how I can use a combination of top-down and bottom-up strategies to help them change their pain. And I'm, I'm, I'm starting usually with bottom-up strategies because for most chronic pain sufferers, they want to feel different and they're not getting any relief from the treatment they're having. And if you want to change your brain activity, it's the best bang for your buck comes by doing something through your body. Right. Tell me more about that. What do you mean by that? Okay. So... Um, to try and keep it simple, if you if you if I said if you if I said you think of going to the beach and you can remember going to the beach and you can remember how that feels, but if you actually go to the beach, you're experiencing that you're smelling the smells, hearing the sounds, it's going into your body and that's going to change how you feel. Mm. Actually, perhaps the best way is if I just mention a, a client of mine who who I 
been treating with this. So he has chronic pain, um, very uh, long term. He was suicidal when he was referred to me and he'd had multiple surgeries, nothing was working. Um, he'd, he'd hurt his back in a, a work injury. So we, I got him to uh, engage in a number of sensory activities on a regular basis to help change his mood and uh, I guess the level of exposure that he experiences to his pain. So that would be things like going, uh, he has a kayak and he lives near a lake, so he goes out on the lake and and just relaxes with the uh, you know the scenery and the sunset. And you can imagine just how mm. soothing that is for him. He has a dog. Um, he's doing so. He's doing. He goes for walks. He's doing these bottom-up things that change his mood regularly and routinely every day. As medicine, really, as therapy. Yeah, yeah. Do, do people think you're a bit crazy when clients come in and they say, "I'm here to see you about my chronic pain," and you prescribe kayaking and dog walking? Okay. Uh, well, I didn't. I didn't prescribe. What I will do is I'll say what everyone has one activity that that when they're doing that activity, they forget themselves. And that's Mm. the activity I'm looking for in each person. Mm. And that's the activity that turns off your default mode network. That's the activity when you don't worry. For some people, it's playing golf. For some people, it's collecting Pokemons. It's (laughs) it's different in every one, but that's Mm. the activity I'm looking for, amongst other things. So the activity that you can do where you lose yourself and you actually stop thinking, essentially. Exactly, exactly. Dr. Mellis. Could, could I just say this This is fascinating and, again, also congratulations on your book. Uh, just the language, it's not actually losing yourself, it's actually finding your true self. Mm. That's the part that was missing that you're going to go searching for. It's been there, it's, but the default mode network has been actually lost. Yeah, it's a you, great point. You have to find it. Yeah. Exactly. So that's the first step, engaging regularly, routinely in an activity where you are... Really, it's a mindful activity, isn't it? You're in the moment, you're not thinking, and you can um, find yourself, find your true self and, and tap into that. Yes. And then, then only later do I bring in the top-down strategies because it's very hard to do mindfulness if you're really in a lot of pain or distress. Mm. You've got to be at a certain level of calmness. You've got to have those feelings under a certain degree of control. So the second phase of the treatment is to bring in the top-down strategies such as mindfulness, visualization, um, um, other cognitive strategies such as overcoming catastrophizing and things like that. Mm-hmm. And also developing new beliefs about the person's ability to cope based on the changes that have occurred. But again, it's, it's bottom-up learning. So it's a lot easier to believe that you can cope when you, when you can start to experience a bit of control over your pain and a bit of change in your body than trying to tell yourself that you can cope without having any sensory basis for that. Right. So it's got to be the combination of that physical experiential sensation Mm. that gives you a bit of a sense of mastery and only then can you address the the cognitive and thinking and, you know, the way that your thoughts and the habits, all of that stuff that are also going to contribute to your pain. Exactly. So none of this is actually about taking tablets, you know, focusing on the area that's causing you pain. It's it's all very different, isn't it? Yes, it's... um it's definitely meant as an alternative to, um, you know, medi- medication and surgery. And usually um, it's about giving the person a sense of that sense of control. And that's what most people want. Mm. Malice. I, I think here this is fascinating, really, because the language here is uh, very important that 
when we say this is alternative, and I, I'm sure that's what you mean, Mark, that in fact there's been a whole game changer of, of what we understand by pain. And I think in your book you actually rename the current view is that it's a neurodegenerative disorder. Now, so this isn't an alternative. Actually, everything that went before is a little outdated now. So if you're still having just tablets for your pain, you've really got to ask yourself, are you being ethically treated? And these options aren't being discussed with you because this is not an alternative. This is the new paradigm. And this is science-based. And this book is actually emerging from personal and clinical wisdom blended with the most solid science. So, so this isn't alternative. It's not it's alternative. It's actually the latest evidence-based it approach, latest. isn't it? Yeah. Yes. It's such a fascinating thing to me to think about uh, pain and chronic pain in this in this new way. So instead of thinking there's this physical thing that's causing me pain and we have to treat that, you know, medically with, with for example, pills and medication uh, or just learn to cope with it because we can't change that, but how do we sort of learn to ignore it or distract ourselves from it? It's actually instead of focusing on that physical cause, we're saying now that, because of that initial experience of physical pain, our brains have changed and so the treatment is addressing the way that our brains are wired and I guess rewiring them in a way, you know, uh, engaging in, in therapies that are going to change the way that our brain processes this rather than focusing on the physical original cause. Exactly. And we don't come, we don't get come into the world with a user manual for our brain. And I guess I think I tried to write. Mm. That's what I was trying to do with this book, to help people, my, my clients and other pain sufferers, learn how to access their, if you like, their subconscious, the non-conscious part of their their brain. And often my clients, particularly following some of my methods such as EMDR, say they feel so different, and they can't understand why they feel different because they didn't actually arrive there through a process of analysis they arrived there through a process of experiential learning mm. and that's so natural but yet so different mm. in therapy in your book you use the expression and also norman Doidge uses it of competitive uh, network or neuroplasticity could you say a few words about what that actually means it's a fancy phrase yes. well competitive neuroplasticity refers to the notion that um you, you can only, your brain can only really process one set of inputs at a time. So if I, if you're in pain and I get you to focus on, for example, uh, bilateral stimulation, which is a treatment component of EMDR, which involves bilateral sounds or sights, then your brain now has a problem. Does it keep paying attention to the pain or does it pay attention to that uh, external input? And because of what we know about the way your brain is wired, your attention is more easily grabbed by external stimuli than by internal stimuli. Hmm. So it's um, impossible for you to ignore an external stimuli when you're in pain. If that external stimuli is more interesting to your brain than what's happening in your body. Right. So that's in fact the foundation of, of one of the major treatment approaches that you use, which is EMDR. Can you yes. just tell us briefly what that stands for and, and what it is? Sure, it's, it's an acronym. It means Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. It was discovered about 20 years ago now by an American psychologist called Francine Shapiro. And to cut a long story short, it's a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and when I saw 
the effects that it was having on post-traumatic stress sufferers and it, I guess it made me think about using it for pain. And the core treatment element is this bilateral stimulation procedure where the client thinks or focuses on the problem while simultaneously focusing on bilateral eye movements or, or tones. And that seems to de- disengage the brain from the traumatic memory and stimulate uh, emotional changes and alterations in the way the memory is stored. Not just in that moment, but uh, lingering after that specific experience. So exactly. in an ongoing way, it's quite remarkable. Research suggests so far, and it's, it's still early days, but the research suggests that it is actually best for people whose pain is trauma-related because their pain is part of that trauma memory. Mm. And if you can process that memory, you can literally... Um, see virtual complete resolution of their pain. You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR and we are talking with Mark Grant, clinical psychologist, about his new book, Change Your Brain, Change Your Pain. And we are almost out of time, but Malice, you've got a burning question. Just, just final, because you brought in trauma and that the EMDR initially 20 years ago was uh, devo- developed for PTSD. Do you have any thoughts about the idea of relational trauma? Because you made earlier the link about attachment issues predisposing people for pain. And given that the currency of relational trauma is intimately linked to attachment issues, some words on that? That's a great question. It's not a brief one, though. No. I'll do my best. Very briefly, the EMDR, um, the problem with relationship trauma is that it creates a bad relationship for the person with themselves. And the EMDR by, helps an, a person to become more in their body and more present to their own feelings, if you like. And so, um, in a strange way, it actually helps address relational trauma by the changes it stimulates in the client. And the sort of empowerment of that mm. self-mastery. Mm. Amazing stuff, Mark. Now, I'm sure lots of people listening to this segment are going to want to know more, and we're out of time on the show today, but we will put details on our Facebook page about your book. It's called Change Your Brain, Change Your Pain by Mark Grant, and it's based on EMDR. And there's amazing... I'm sorry we didn't get into this, but there's amazing audio components to the book, so people can yes. download all of these audio components, listen to it. It's it's very experiential, as you've described, uh, and very accessible. Uh, but you're also giving a talk tomorrow night if people wanted to know more. So tell us, where's the talk? What's it on? Yes, I'll be giving a, a talk on uh, Monday night. That's tomorrow at the Hawthorne Library in Room 3. Um, from one hour at 7pm um, about this approach and how it works. And, and even if people want to, want to register for that, they can do that at my website, www.overcomingpain.com. Just scroll down on the front page. Great, and we'll put that uh, website up on our Facebook page as well if people okay. want to know more. Thank you so much, Mark. It was fantastic hearing about all of that. We are going to come back with our second special guest for the day, um, Dr. Emma, Dr. Emma Halmos, <laughs> practicing dietitian and researcher in the area of irritable bowel syndrome and the FODMAP diet, as well as celiac disease. So don't go away. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. 
We better get to our second guest, who is Dr. Emma Helmus, and she's an accredited practicing dietitian working in the area of gastrointestinal research. Uh, her achievements have had an impact both in the area of academia and also the community. She's completed a PhD, which was all about the role of a low FODMAP diet in managing symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome and the effects of FODMAPs on gut health as well. But she's currently working at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research, which you might know as WEHI, as I do. And she's looking at treatments for celiac disease, which we will chat about if we get time. But my real focus with Emma today is going to be about IBS and the FODMAP diet. So welcome, Emma. Hello. Thank you for your invitation. Thank you for joining us early on a Sunday morning. Um... I always like a bit of the personal to start off with and so I'm interested, you know, I often have thoughts when I'm thinking about, you know, my diet and what I should and shouldn't be eating. I, I often think, gee, I'd love to have a degree in the area of... Dietetics. Dietetics. I was going to say that mismetic, but then I had a, a moment where I, I saw thought, that. is that what it's called? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, always my wing woman. Um and, yeah, I mean, it's amazing knowledge to have and, you know, sometimes I do wish that I had studied it in much more detail at uni. So, Emma, what got you into the area of dietetics and um, sparked the interest to become a dietitian and researcher in the field? Well, I, I always really loved um, science at school and I loved people, but most importantly, I really, really love food. <laughs> uh, I still do. Food is really, you know, something that I have a huge passion for. I'm not best cook, but I love to eat it mm. um and so i think you know the combining my love of science and food and people so superb, and so you work both in research and as a dietitian. So you yes. see patients, but you also research um, treatments in the area of gastrointestinal health. Um, I wanted to start, though, with IBS, which is what most of your PhD was focused on. So irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, it's, it's talked about a lot in the media these days, I think, and people have uh, often a sort of surface understanding of, of what it is and sometimes even self-diagnose. But can you help us understand what it actually is please well irritable bowel syndrome is is characterized by a, a group of of gut symptoms so and it's diagnosed on that as well based on on um criteria we call the rome three rome four criteria now mm -hmm. um and it's based on uh, symptoms of abdominal pain diarrhea and or constipation people also feel bloating um and various other gut symptoms that that's how it's characterized but actually in the last few years we get to understand a lot more about the what's called the pathophysiology of the reasons why people get these symptoms and what's actually happening in the body um and uh some of the research I was doing is looking at the low FODMAP diet which targets something called visceral hypersensitivity which occurs in roughly three quarters of people with irritable bowel syndrome and, and what that means is that the little nerves, uh, nerve endings um, that we all have present in our gut to tell us to stop eating when we overeat are a little hypersensitive or a little more switched on in about three quarters of people with irritable bowel syndrome. Wow. Mm. Now, FODMAP, you mentioned the yes. FODMAP diet, which I have heard about, but I actually know very little about yeah. what it actually is. And there are so many diets out there these days and so many people trying so many different things. What's FODMAP? 
So FODMAP is a, an acronym that refers to fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides and polyols. So that's why we say FODMAP. Yeah, hence the uh, acronym. But it, it basically describes fermentable sugars. And um, the fermentable sugars, uh, one that most people are more, more familiar with is lactose. That is a FODMAP. Fructose is another one. And then we have oligosaccharides and polyols. And the term FODMAPs groups all of these sugars together um, because they actually behave very similarly in the body and what happens is we eat these naturally occurring sugars in all sorts of foods um, they hit the large bowel not just in people with irritable bowel but in every single one of us and um, what they do is they ferment and produce a very lovely beautiful healthy gas um, <laughs> and they draw a bit of fluid through the gut as well now for, for most of us without irritable bowel syndrome that's not a problem at all um, in fact it's quite good for us but if you've got this visceral hypersensitivity then your body can interpret that gas and that fluid as symptoms and so this is an opportunity where we say well let's try someone on a low FODMAP diet where we reduce not just one but collectively all of these sugars um, to see if that person feels better. So is this something we should all be trying then? Definitely not. No. <laughs> so my PhD was looking at um, uh, how well the low FODMAP diet works. I did a, a trial to see uh, what, uh, what's called a randomised control trial, which is uh, the gold standard in showing how we uh, how a treatment works. Um, and what it did was it actually reduced again three quarters of people with irritable bowel syndrome reduced their symptoms to a level we would consider um, clinically good um, and then the other aspect is I collected a lot of sort of samples from um, from the participants um, and analysed it for things like um, um, bacteria and we see that actually while the low FODMAP diet does work really well to reduce people's symptoms um, one of the negatives is that it actually has a negative impact on our, our what we call our microbiome or our gut, my, mm. gut uh, bacteria so we need to be careful who we um, apply this to and to what degree so this is a diet really needing to be done in conjunction with a, with a dietitian who's, who's well versed in the area of IBS Oh, look, I think this is a really fascinating area and I, as a GP, see lots of people with irritable bowel type symptoms. Um, and one of the things that's important to get across is, and it probably speaks to a lot of what Mark was saying as well, it's this interpretation of symptoms. So essentially in irritable bowel, uh, there are sort of normal processes going on, but for those people... Their, their interpretation of the symptoms can be that there's something wrong. This is wrong, it's bad, I need to get rid of it, fix it. There must be something wrong. But it's important to say that when we look at the gut of people with irritable bowel, it looks completely normal, isn't that correct? It's, a, it's what we call a functional bowel disease. That's right. And actually there's a lot of conditions that mimic or look a lot like irritable bowel syndrome which is why it's so important to go to GP um, and not self-diagnose because things like celiac disease but also inflammatory bowel disease um, and many other conditions can look the same way and are treated very differently. Um, so it's important to get the accurate diagnosis of irritable bowel first and then to um, get a uh, the appropriate treatment um, and the low FODMAP diet, um, you know, might be really good for for yeah. a proportion of people with irritable bowel. Yeah. That's right. And so there are other treatments available also. Yes. And some of, sometimes um, we even, you know, focus on some of the psychological 
side of having irritable bowel syndrome and interpretation of symptoms and that type of thing because that so that's really important it's sort of a multifactorial condition isn't it it is and i work for, i'm very fortunate to work very closely with psychologists and um uh, clinical hypnotherapists as well um uh, because uh, many psychological treatments including hypnotherapy have had just as good a rate of success in helping people with irritable bowel syndrome so it's good that we have a lot of tools um to to use to so that if a low FODMAP diet doesn't help or is not suitable for the person for whatever reason that there are other treatments to use um, instead of or in combination yeah you're listening to radiotherapy and we're chatting to dr emma helmus about ibs and the fodmap diet dr mallis yes emma as we're just talking about the so-called functional disorders of the bowel as opposed to the organic ones as it used to be in the old paradigm now that we talk about the two brains the head brain and the gut brain would you like to say something about this visceral hypersensitivity because that's not functional visceral is actually the gut and if it's hypersensitive there's got to be some basis for why it's so sensitive we don't know what what sort of causes this there's certainly um risk factors for you getting irritable bowel syndrome um and uh interestingly psychological having a history of psychological trauma is one of them a big Mm. one actually um and there are various other things as well like um uh, being quite unwell on lots of antibiotics as an infant or a child is another risk factor for developing irritable bowel but we don't know what exactly causes it um all we can do is treat um and one aspect is to target the um the end organ or the gut part with diet or we target the the other end which is the brain part through psychological treatments so would this be also as we were hearing from mark before a top down or bottom up as it were yeah but here looking at the gut being top down from the brain yeah (laughs) and bottom up actually the large bowel yeah that's well i i guess that's a a good way to put it but i i think um the type of treatment that's appropriate for the person is very individual um and there are certain people who uh you know the diet works really really well and there are certain people that you perhaps uh risk of of um nutritional inadequacies or malnutrition or have other dietary requirements where you perhaps wouldn't want to restrict diet where um psychological treatments are much better way to go yes could we just go into the controversial topic because it was in the newspaper last week of bowel problems treated with fecal transplants and which is the first time i've heard of it a thing called a crapsule as opposed to a capsule (laughs) and which i think is fairly self-explanatory one of these crapsules in last week's body and soul magazine Uh, uh, any thoughts on this advance well yes yeah, so uh, it's very, very topical what's what we call there's a new sort of area of treatment called fecal microbiota transplantation which was originally targeted for people with what's called um clostridium difficile uh, infection um but this is actually being investigated in other conditions the next one being investigated now is if you have ulcerative colitis but that's very sort of new it's not uh made stream yet and and as you can see lots of different uh i guess uh methods of delivery have been uh, uh, developed as well 
But so again, you know, as we were saying about the area of chronic pain, it's a fascinating area to work in, no doubt, because the research is changing so fast and we're learning all these new things. The thing that really strikes me that we, we sort of keep saying in this matter-of-fact way is the link between mind and body and you know for these very physical physically based uh conditions and and sensations you know of irritable bowel or chronic pain um the stuff we're learning now about the role of the mind and therefore the treatment approaches that actually target the mind as well as the body you know we're we're sort of saying this matter of factly nowadays yet i just i found it i find it so groundbreaking that that's where our learning is going and it's it's such an interesting area so thank you emma lovely to have you on the show and tied in so beautifully with our segment from mark grant we are out of time i don't know how it's happened but it's happened again and stay tuned now because after us we've got all the scientists on air with einstein a go-go just thank you again to dr emma halmus and mark grant thank you to our lovely regulars dr malice miss medic and kent pushing the buttons so smoothly thanks for joining us today and we will see you again next week at 10 o'clock this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au